0: How's it going everybody? This is Dan Fagella here with Tech Emergence and I'm lucky enough to be on the horn right now with uh, Dr. Jahan Thenga who is currently um, an assistant professor at Arizona State University's founder of the Space and Terrestrial Robotic Exploration Lab there as well as uh, previously being a postdoc at MIT. Dr. Thenga how are you? Great. Awesome. I'm very glad to have you on board. I had initially found you kind of through the MIT and various other MIT connections and folks that we've interviewed um, on here. And one of the areas that really brought, kind of brought you into to our scopes um, was some of your research that started there, which obviously you're continuing to this day in your various projects over at ASU, um, particularly bio-inspired neuroevolutionary methods. We've interviewed a couple folks in the robotic space who are doing a lot that involves kind of uh, bio-inspiration, whether that's the materials or the functions of particular robotic systems, but um, yours is uh, neuro-evolutionary methods. I really wanted to get an idea of what that actually means and implies, just so we can kind of get a layman's terms understanding.
1: Sure. Uh, Neuroevolutionary methods uh, are are inspired from uh, the brain cells in um, uh, uh, multicellular organisms. So um, these are your nervous systems, these are your brain cells. Uh, You know, this is how, uh, these are the control systems in in real-life biological systems, right? Yep. And what we're trying to do is uh, those systems are very complex. We we don't have a good understanding of, of how they work. In, in humans, that is you know the ultimate goal of trying to understand both uh, the brain and the mind. Yeah. Uh, in our case, we're going towards you know some um, uh, I, I guess some humble goals in that we're trying to understand the basics of. Um you know how these individual cells work together as a group to you know come up with cohesive decisions so that's that's some of the essence that we're trying to model and and we look towards uh, um uh, artificial neural networks as a as a as a good starting point for yeah. that um and so artificial neural networks emerged in the uh, late forties. Um, particularly with the popularization of uh, the uh, neural um, model McCullough, by McCullough and Pitts. With okay. that, what we have uh, gone on is to, with, with those early models, the big thing that was, um, I, I guess, uh, captured in there was electrical connections between uh, neurons in the brain. Okay? okay. And <laughs> since then, Um, there's been extensive work uh, done in that field, and what they found is it's it's not that simple. It's not just electrical connections that's going on. There's also chemical uh, communication that's going on within our brains as well. So it's this mix of both electrical and chemical. And so that's what um, our um, basic models capture uh, within biological systems, this interplay between chemical and electrical communication between cells and we use that. In other words, we uh, evolve that using Darwinian methods. So just like um, how farmers used to breed um, certain capabilities and characteristics into uh, into animals that they herd yeah. uh, over uh, many years, we do the same uh, towards um, uh, you know developing uh, robust controllers. And we use that, uh, particularly in multi-robot systems, because uh, with multi-robot systems, it's an open challenge of how best to uh, control them uh, and and get consensus among them towards you know solving some task effectively. Just having more robots does not mean uh, it's more productive because one robot can uh, undo the work of another. Certainly, and so. Um part of this effort is to come up with creative methods towards getting these robots to cooperatively solve the task and, and do so very well.
0: And I know I've seen some of your uh, research just on your own site there with regards to robots uh, designed to clear like a landing space or um, yes. robots that can excavate and a whole bunch of other tasks that involve kind of more than one robot on the move. Um, And and I know that that's, that's in some respects, where they're going with some of the the quadricopter uh, projects is sort of how can we get them to self-organize in some way, shape, or form in in terms of forming shapes or performing a task. Um, How how does that sort of uh, Darwinian modeling that you guys are doing now, that that evolutionary process of uh, robust controllers as you had had framed it, um, how does that play into that group activity? I mean, are, are you running a whole bunch of different potential algorithms for what it is that these robots could do and how it is that they'll interact, if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, then that, and you know, you're know, okay. you throwing eight out there at once and then you're cutting out the ones that are clearly not working? How does that sort of evolutionary process apply there?
1: Sure. Uh, the uh, evolutionary process is quite simple. What we do is we define a task and what we have to, in a sense, define is a, a fitness function for a task. And that has to be defined um, uh, 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 quantitatively. Yep. Now, in other words, we have to have a ranking system for a task whereby, you know, zero is absolutely bad <laughs> and one is brilliant. Yep. Okay. And then that's that's the basic premise that, that's uh, uh, or, or the basic requirement for this. Next, what we have to provide is a, a library of uh, behaviors that these uh, robots may have access to. Yep. Okay? Uh, it may be useful for them; it may not. But this is a, this is this library that is uh, that they could use as a resource. And then similarly, they would also require a library of uh, sensory inputs that they could choose to use or not use. Ah, okay. Uh, okay, and then uh, followed by that, what we provide is a library of playing scenarios. So in other words, different um, randomly initialized scenarios uh, that, that again uh, is is uh, representative of the real world environment in which they will evolve. Okay. So we provide this whole um, you know mixture of things and then let the controllers uh, you know uh, be selected through this evolutionary process. So with the evolutionary process, we use the fitness function. They're all randomly initialized first. So you know your first generation, chances are they 're not going to uh, make a dent in solving the task yeah okay and and what ends up uh, happening and this is where it 's really fascinating is that a few of them will make this minor dent okay <laughs> and there'll be this there'll be this sort of differential between this population of uh, some individuals just doing you know slightly better than uh, everybody else, and that 's used as part of the selection algorithm to um, uh, to you select these fitter individuals, and then they mate and mutate and live on uh, in their children, while the unfit individuals
0: are called off. And, 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 so and
1: that process, <laughs> yes, go ahead.
0: Yeah, the, this this mating must of course be uh, metaphorical or or uh, metaphorical, representative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like wow, they got some pretty pretty advanced robots over there at ASU, man. Let me yeah, tell you. Yeah. Um, so okay, so yeah, so obviously uh, so, yeah, that's what we use to yeah.
1: Offline. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so we we, um, we evolve this offline, and and um, this process continues until uh, it um, uh, it converges on a on a solution. Okay. And so, for for some of these tasks, just to give you a scale of uh, you know, both how daunting it is, and you know what type of solutions that we get, and how fast we get for a typical excavation task, the search space size could be about 10 to the 53 million. Okay, 10 to the power of 53 million, okay? That could be a full search space size. Now that is, uh, compared to the number of atoms in the known universe, which is only about 10 to the 80, okay?
0: Mm.
1: So it happens to be, you know, even the, even the simplest of problems that we're looking at in, in, in these tasks are, are, are just huge. Now, um, that is why we have you know, tried other methods, and, and they're, they cannot handle you know, dimensions of, of this size. We know that for sure. Uh, the, the other is that typically with, with robotic tasks and, and human tasks in general is that it's, it's, um, solving these tasks is not like a needle in an haystack kind type problem. In other words, there's no one good solution over uh, one minus 10 to the 53 million other bad solutions. Yeah. So there is a spectrum of mediocre and spectrum of, you know, uh, everything in between uh, good and brilliant. Yep. Um, and and um, so that, it, that makes find, finding a solution uh, that much easier. However, that alone is still not enough. So the other two um, fundamental um, strategies is to do dimensionality reduction. And that's where the neural networks come in. Okay. The neural networks are generalizers. They can, if you don't know what function you need to use to solve some task, a neural network can adapt to that function. Okay. So in that sense, it's a, it's a generalist. Uh, number two is the you know principle of task decomposition. So that's something that we as you know humans learn right throughout life. It's it's our you know basic life process of taking some complex task that we don't know how to solve, breaking it up into smaller and smaller chunks until we solve these smaller tasks and then from that figure out how to solve this, you know, grand task. And with uh, robotic systems, with these, you know, evolutionary robotic systems, they have to evolve that capability on their own, okay? Okay. And so that also, by by allowing them to do this task decomposition and and, solving these complex tasks, they, in other words, breaking the dimensionality of these problems. In other words, in other words making them tractable and, and solving them in finite time. So, with our excavation task, um, as I had said, uh, the dimensional search space is 10 to the fifteen million, and uh, we get solutions to them in about uh, 5,000 generations. So when we first ran them, maybe about uh, six, seven, you know, about eight years ago now, um, you know, it would take about uh, five, six hours on a, 10 for 4 computer. Nowadays we can uh, run that system and get an excellent solution within about
0: an hour or less. Wow. Uh, And and give us a a little bit of an example of what one of these sample excavation tasks might be. I know that, again, I was able to dig into your website, so I'm a little bit more familiar than the the folks who are listening in. What are these types of tasks uh, that you're having these robots do and, and, and kind of interact with each other to accomplish?
1: So with the excavation task, the idea is you have a uh, a human provide a blueprint of what they need excavated. So this would be a a 3D blueprint of a a map, right? So Mm -hmm. you may have some flat terrain and you want these robots to excavate some three-dimensional terrain out. Yeah. So this could be the foundation of a building, this could be a landing pad, this could be to. Um, you know dig a trench to bury pipes um, uh, wiring for example um, maybe even you know build a dam uh, so it's a whole range of possibilities uh, and, and and typically it's to you know sort of excavate material out from one spot and be able to dump it in another spot okay so we cool. provide this blueprint and then and then it's it's for the robots uh, the, um, and and you know there could be one or more, and their job is to work cooperatively to best excavate to that blueprint and match it in finite time.
0: Yep. And you had, you had mentioned you guys can go through a number of iterations very very swiftly. You don't actually have to do the physical excavating. You know you had mentioned five five thousand uh, individual yes. tests or whatever there. So if you're doing that in an hour, obviously. You can't have these robots digging something up five thousand times in one hour, right?
1: Correct. Correct. So um, y- yes, we're we're also looking at it as as part of a you know different research thrust. But at the moment, most of our work is uh, most of our evolution is done offline. So all these five thousand generations are are run, run in simulations on on uh, typically you know desktop um, capable computers, not not, not uh, you know, super fancy stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> super uh, fancy and, stuff. And uh, we, we take those solutions and then we take the fittest ones, so typically the 90% time, and then we apply those on, on a, a team of real robots. Ah. And, uh, and, then, and then we try to validate those results because it's, it's not alone enough to, you know, have, have results in simulation and, no. and um, you know, sort of, sort of feel, feel good about that. We want to you know we want to, have
0: to verify this and validate the real world okay cool um, that that I feel like uh, sheds a lot of light on it in, in in some respect as you had mentioned it is relatively straightforward I can see how that evolutionary process is applied it also seems massively convenient that you don't have to do all of the initial testing to boil down that 90th percentile or whatever there um, with physical tests which of course sounds like you'd need a just teams and teams of people working around the clock to to iron out those nuances so it's cool that you can kind of run it on a regular old computer as you had said not super fancy stuff and then take it to the robots once things have been refined and then really determine okay you know what are the behaviors the algorithms the the evolutionary um sort of pathways in terms of as you had mentioned everything from sensors behaviors um, and training scenarios that are ultimately going to get this task done. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, and, and I know that there's a lot of folks working on kind of swarm robots or or um, robotic intelligence. Your particular approach of sort of uh, bio-inspiring uh, neuroevolutionary methods is, is a little bit different than maybe some of the other things that I've uh, seen or interviewed folks about thus far. Where do you see this particular kind of technology um, uh, making its biggest impact in maybe the next five to ten years? I know you're working a lot in space. Presumably, though, you know Earth can use robots that can work together as well. Where do you think in the next half-decade we'll start to see you know a potential impact in our day-to-day lives or in particular important areas of science, if at all, again, in, in that half-decade time span from this technology?
1: Sure. Um, I, I think one of the big entry points for this technology is that all it requires is imperfect individuals working in a group to come up with a robust system. So, in the alternate paradigm, you have to have a single robot that is close to being perfect. Okay. Yeah. So, one is more difficult than the other, um, and that's why this has a good entry point into, uh, you know, making um, uh, making practical inroads in, in many different areas uh, where you can have. Um, Individual robots that are, you know, built imperfectly, that have you know, major limitations, that have limited life, have um, various limitations and capabilities. Yep. So in terms of the possible applications, um, we have been actively involved in the excavation uh, research area. Uh, we think there's great potential there. One is that, uh, you know, this could completely automate, uh, uh, you know, large-scale excavation work. And where we see practical applications for this is in uh, renewable energy.
0: Ah, talk to uh, me about that. Uh, with,
1: with renewable energy, um, renewable energy, um, I, I guess, uh, or renewable power generator systems are, are typically decentralized. So, for example, uh, wind farm, they're going to have these um, wind farm towers that are you know, regularly spaced or maybe unevenly spaced right you know, throughout a large area. Number two, you have the same problem with um, uh, solar thermal systems. We have uh, a bunch of mirrors that concentrate sunlight onto some tower or heat up some working fluid to you know, generate uh, electricity. And then, and then the third uh, is is photovoltaic solar panels. Also laid out, you know, in a distributed fashion, not in some you know, central location, but sort of spread out over large areas. So. That type of work, uh, for it to become practical, for it to, in a sense, um, offset um, uh, petroleum uh, as, a, as a you know energy source, yep. has to be done at large scale, and and, and that's where the payoff comes, and um, has to be done at large scale and has to be maintainable. All of these systems require some level of maintenance, unlike a uh, petroleum based. Solution. I, I I should say less, more so than a petroleum-based system. Yeah. And and so uh, what this means is that robotics could be it could be an end <laughs> and and robotics is, is um, could make that difference because it could make it cheaper, and and that's that's what the market sort of understands. Right? It's got to be cheaper. It's got to have that um, business advantage for it to for it to make a dent. Big time. Um, so, so just to give you an example, for example, there is a solar thermal power plant that was opened in the United Arab Emirates. Um, it, it's a um, it has a bunch of mirrors that's concentrating sunlight onto the central tower, which heats up this molten salt, which then you know heats up water uh, as steam to drive a turbine to produce electricity. Now, for this system, there are two hundred sixty thousand mirrors uh, out there in the desert. Okay, all pointing at the central tower. Wow. So, so you know, if, if you were to think of that scale here, these mirrors don't stay clean all the time. They're no. gonna have dust on them. Uh, they're in the middle of the desert. You're going to have sand dunes forming around them. So all these factors, and, 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 and the other is you know, just, the, just the ability to install 260,000 mirrors in the middle of the desert. It, it's a you know, huge, gigantic impact. So all of this stuff, you know, for it to be practical and, and you know, reach this you know, very large scale of implementation, and that's where it could make a difference, is uh, using robotics systems
0: such as such as what we've been proposing. Got it. Cool. Well, that, that sheds a little light on that as well, and it's, it's interesting that you guys are, because I didn't get that initially from your site, but moving into that world of alternative energy. Um, where can, can people go to? I know we're just about on time here, and I'm glad we got to kind of cover what we have. If people want to learn a little bit more about the particular projects that you're digging into now and, and sort of where you guys are moving um, with your current research, where should they go and find you or learn more about this?
1: Um, my website is uh, space.asu.edu, and uh, my contact info is uh, on that site, and my email address is um, jnjekan at asu.edu so I can be uh, acceptable from those
0: two points. Cool. I'll make sure that I include that in the article as well. Uh, Dr. Thanga, thank you so much for taking the time to to delve a little bit into what you're doing. I know that clarified a lot of uh, things for me in terms of kind of group robot behavior and what your research is about. I think it'll do the same for other folks, and I want to say I appreciate your time very much. Great. Thank you. Cool. Thanks. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker, Uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential. then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, If you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, And be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, More than anything else, always feel free to reach out. If you can find us via email, um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, So with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.